I'm going to tell you a ghost story. You know how this goes. You've heard it before. A friend of a friend was somehow involved. And you're removed just enough to think that it could be true. People who tell stories like this are often seen as gullible or sensational. Well, my name is Esther Snow. I'm a journalist. You may have heard of me. Maybe not. But I have a secret. I was there at the beginning of a ghost story. It's a secret for exactly the reasons I mentioned before. Most people who claim to have been there are full of it. I grew up in a small town in Kentucky. You've never heard of it, but you know what happened there. It was the summer of 2001. Two girls, Violet Hale and Lisa Banks, in the middle of the night, on opposite sides of town, stopped what they were doing and walked into the vast, dark, Daniel Boone National Forest. They never came home. Over the course of this series, we'll investigate the disappearance of Lisa Banks and Violet Hale, and hopefully, we'll figure out what happened that summer night so many years ago in Olive Hill. By nature, a ghost story varies in the retelling from person to person. So let's take a second to get on the same page. We're going to review the events that everyone agrees on, leaving out the more sensational and even supernatural theories. First, since we're going to dive into some off-the-beaten-path journalistic territory, here's a disclaimer. I've done my best to ensure that my own memories of these events don't interfere with our reporting. While recording this project, it was difficult at times to know where that line should be drawn. On the one hand, I know this place. I know this story. And on the other hand, it's literally day one in journalism school. Don't be a part of the story. I didn't go to journalism school, but nonetheless, it's a good rule to follow. So my producer and I ended up settling this conundrum by drawing a line between how my personal experiences could and couldn't be used. I'll use my memories and knowledge of the town to set the mood, to create the setting, and so forth. But my own memories, emotions, and general knowledge of these events will not be used to drive the story. I think we did a pretty good job walking that line. Let's set the scene and tell the story based on the agreed-upon facts first. We'll build from that foundation. All right, the disclaimer is done. Let's get into it. It was the summer of 2001. Y2K had come and gone the year before without the collapse of civilization. The class of 2001 was the first of the new millennium, and there was a sense of promise and destiny that came with it. We were going to solve all of the problems of the last century. The information age had arrived. For many of us, the vicarious hopes and dreams of our educators and politicians and parents had even managed to penetrate the heavy cynicism of the 1990s. Somehow the change on the calendar promised a brand new world. In a few short months, airplanes would fly into the World Trade Center. And just like that, the sense of promise and destiny would begin to fade. By the time I graduated high school in 2003, the long build-up to war had come to fruition. That potential we'd all felt at the turn of the millennium was gone. The new car smell had already worn off this young century. 
but I've gotten ahead of myself. That summer in Olive Hill, Kentucky, we were still those innocent, pre-9-11 teenagers, blissfully unaware of the outside world, as we'd always been. The outside world didn't often show up in our little town anyway. July 20th, 2001 was a Friday. It was a warm summer night when Violet was last seen. Teenagers in Olive Hill often gathered to party on an abandoned farm outside of town. It was an open secret. Far back on that abandoned farm, there was a corner that ended at a tall ridgeline, one of the first ridgelines making up the Appalachian foothills. The other boundary was the Daniel Boone National Forest. The forest cuts eastern Kentucky in half. It runs north to south and can be as little as 15 miles and as much as 55 miles across. We are located along one of these wide portions. A long, well-worn trail of tire marks led to this portion of the old farm from the main road. The farm's owner had left town years earlier. There was a fear among the kids in town that the owners would one day return, robbing them of their secret and secluded place. There were stories about the farmhouses and barns being haunted, about terrible things that happened there. None of it was true, but it was our local ghost story. None of us could have known that in our town's real-life ghost story, that eerie, abandoned farm would actually be the last place that Violet Hale was safe. Violet had been drinking, but Violet never drank very much. Friends say she typically nursed the same bottle or cup for the entire night. She left the party at about 1 o'clock in the morning, Saturday, July 21st. She said her goodbyes to friends and her boyfriend, Anthony Bledsoe, who we'll meet later in the series. Violet would have driven south along the same road where the abandoned farm was located. She'd have passed through town, a handful of stop signs before traveling another few miles south to her family's house, along the boundary of the National Forest. Police determined that Violet arrived home shortly after leaving the party. She likely hadn't made any stops on her way. Nothing would have been open. According to the police report, the keys to her father's truck, which she'd used the night of the party, were left on the kitchen counter, where she would usually leave them. Her bed had been made when she left for the party, but in the morning it had been slept in. Her toothbrush was wet, showing that it had been used in the last few hours. There were clothes that smelled of campfire on the floor in her bedroom. One of the deputies on the Hills property that day was an avid hunter. He managed to track Violet's footsteps to the forest at the back end of the Hales property. Sometime between arriving home from the party and her parents waking up at 6.30 in the morning, Violet had laid down to bed, gotten back up, brushed her teeth, gotten dressed, gone outside, and locked the door behind her and walked into the forest. Within the same timeline, across town, Lisa Banks was working third shift at a diner by Interstate 64. Without speaking to anyone, she walked out of the diner, and surveillance cameras looking out onto the parking lot show her walking due south, directly into the forest. Lisa and Violet had been childhood friends, but had grown apart over time. Those who knew them reported that while they were friendly when they encountered each other, they didn't spend time together and were part of different social circles. We know more about the circumstances around Lisa's disappearance than Violet's because of the surveillance cameras inside the diner and in the parking lot. 
Her co-workers assumed she was going on a break. Her boyfriend worked at an all-night gas station across US 60, and they often met up during their breaks. Initially, many people, including the police, believed that the girls had run away together. But Lisa didn't have a car. Her boyfriend or her co-workers drove her to and from work, and she walked the wrong way. Not toward the gas station where he worked, but into the forest that led, well, nowhere. Violet, too, there was nothing in the forest in the direction she'd gone. The hope that the girls had run away and would soon return was lost on Monday, July 23, 2001, when Lisa's body was found several miles into the forest. She was still wearing her work uniform, but her body had been scavenged heavily by wildlife. At least that's what the search party had originally thought. Over the following days, a far more disturbing story came together. As investigators followed the trail Lisa had cut through the forest, they began to notice another set of tracks. Several other sets, actually. They were dog-like tracks, most likely coyotes. Shortly after they began following her, investigators found scraps of her work uniform and traces of blood on the ground and the brush along her way. They were all covered in animal saliva. The depth of her footsteps and their distance apart didn't change after the dogs began to attack her. She'd continued walking without slowing or speeding up after the dogs began to nip at her calves and hands. She didn't change pace when they began pulling at pieces of her work uniform. For a quarter mile, they drew blood and tore her clothes until she finally succumbed to them and fell to the ground. She'd calmly walked deeper and deeper into the forest while being eaten alive. How is it that someone wouldn't react to being attacked by wild animals, even as they take bites of your hands, legs, wrists, your back, as they jump and snap at your chest and neck? Where was she going? Where were either of them going? And did Violet survive? It's all speculation after that. Look, those girls became campfire stories, ghost stories. But they were real people, and something happened to them in the real world. Not something supernatural, not folklore, real life. Someone in this town knew something. They didn't wander into the forest for no reason. This is Sheriff Robert Isaac Wood. He was the sheriff at the time of the girls' disappearances. By the time it was all over, neither the Olive Hill Police Department, the Hamilton County Sheriff, the state police, and the FBI were able to figure out why they went into the forest that night. The problem was complicated by all the rumors. Every other person we talked to said that a demon had called them out into the forest or they had been possessed. So when they found the Banks girl in that condition, it only gave that nonsense more credibility. They ostracized that poor girl in life, and then they humiliated her in death. And that's the saddest part of the story. Just to clarify, Sheriff Wood used the phrase, by the time it was all over. But technically, Violet and Lisa's cases are still open. Sheriff Wood referred to a church, and to rumors. We'll dig into that more in future episodes, but for now, it's important to know that Lisa Banks had a reputation of being a witch. That's right, a witch. 
in an increasingly conservative and even fundamentalist Christian town. The Church of Mercy and Light had begun a culture war in which a handful of Olive Hill residents were targeted as unholy, against God, demonic, or otherwise dangerous on a spiritual level. Lisa was a prime target for culture warriors, afraid of the spiritual realm. When Lisa was very young, her parents divorced, and she moved into town with her mother. It was a big change from the sprawling plot of land south of Olive Hill, where she'd grown up with Violet. Lisa's mother had a breakdown of sorts, and shortly after moving into town, she brought Lisa into the police station on a Saturday and frantically explained that this girl was not her daughter. She said Lisa had been replaced by an imposter. Lisa stayed with family for several weeks until her mother was on medication and going to counseling. Over time, it was determined that she'd been in a bad place due to the divorce. I can't imagine the impact that must have had on a young girl to be disavowed by her mother. Later, Lisa had an episode in the high school cafeteria. While she was in line, she began to sweat and tremble. She began involuntarily groaning and then fell over and was unable to get up. Her breathing and heart rate went through the roof. This might have been an undiagnosed seizure, but after it made its way through the rumor mill, others believed something more demonic. These were the last gasps of the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s. To some, Lisa's disappearance was confirmation of these rumors. After her disappearance, the pastor of Mercy and Light tried to include Violet in the list of people who were under the devil's control, but it didn't stick like it had with Lisa. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now that we've gone through what happened that night, let's talk about the investigation in the days and weeks after. On the morning of July 21st, at approximately 6.30 in the morning, the Olive Hill Police Department received a phone call from Evelyn Hale, reporting her daughter missing. Police arrived approximately 20 minutes later and began taking statements and searching the Hales' property. Initially, a missing persons report is declined as 24 hours had not elapsed. Violet's father was an influential figure in Olive Hill. He contacted Sheriff Wood directly at his home and a missing persons report was immediately filed, breaking standard protocol. Violet's boyfriend, Anthony Bledsoe, was a prime suspect and was detained at his home for questioning at approximately 8.30 a.m. He was then taken into custody for further interrogation at approximately noon. At 1.15 p.m., the National Park Service was notified to be on the lookout for a missing person in the vicinity of Olive Hill. At approximately 6 o'clock p.m., Lisa's mother called the police to report her missing. She initially assumed that Lisa had gone to her boyfriend, Ricky Allen's house. Ricky had assumed she'd gone home to her mother's house after work. It wasn't until the rumors of Violet's disappearance that she became concerned. Police opened a second missing persons case for Lisa Banks, also breaking protocol. However, Sheriff Wood later stated that he couldn't bend the rules for one family and declined to do so for another on the very same day. Violet's footsteps were tracked to a barn at the back of the Hale property, but the trail ended in an open field where it's widely believed that she entered the forest. At 8.45 p.m., Lisa Banks' boyfriend is detained at his home for questioning in Lisa's disappearance. At 10.30 p.m., he is brought into custody for further interrogation. For a short period of time, Ricky Allen and Anthony Bledsoe 
the boyfriends of Lisa and Violet at this time, share a cell until a member of the Olive Hill Police Department realizes that they might be trying to get their stories straight. A 911 dispatcher remembered a call from the previous weekend, July 15, 2001, and recovered the call. In it, a distressed girl is asking what would happen if she reported a kidnapping. The call disconnected shortly afterward. The voice cannot be positively identified, but it is widely believed to be the voice of Lisa Banks. This was a full six days before she disappeared. By the end of the first day, the entire town is aware of the two girls' disappearances. Rumors and speculation begin to spread, and sightings of one or both of the girls begin pouring into the police department and 911. That night, no one left their homes. Businesses closed early. The people in town who didn't lock their doors locked them that night. The streets were silent. Anthony was released at 9.20 a.m. the next morning, July 22, 2001, under the condition that he should notify police if he intended to leave the county. At 10 o'clock, parishioners began arriving at the Church of Mercy and Light. When Sunday morning services begin, the pastor explains that the disappearance of Lisa Banks was the devil calling her out into the forest to take her for his own. From this point on, many sightings called into the police included supernatural figures, shadows, or demons accompanying the girls. A door-to-door search of Hamilton County began at approximately 2 p.m. They came to our door at about 8 p.m. that night. I can recall the two police officers at the door. The sun had already gone below the mountains, and the sky was a twilight orange behind them. They asked if either me or my mother had seen them. They had brought photos, but... I'd gone to school with these girls for two years. I knew what they looked like. They asked if my friends and I had heard anything about the girls leaving town, or if anyone would have wanted to hurt them. I hadn't heard anything except the rumors since they'd disappeared, and I didn't have that many friends. The whole exchange lasted maybe three or four minutes, but it was one of the more surreal moments of my life. Due to a prior criminal record, police were able to hold Ricky for an additional day. A journal from Lisa Banks' bedroom was leaked to the Olive Hill Sentinel, the local newspaper. With astonishing disregard of journalistic ethics, the Sentinel published the journal's most salacious bits. They showed a girl who didn't feel at home in her life, who didn't feel at home in her body. She felt disconnected from everything around her. They gave the impression of a disturbed girl. This, of course, added more fuel to the speculation that Lisa was under the control of dark spirits and unholy forces. On Monday, July 23rd, Lisa's body was found. Knowing the mood of the town, Sheriff Wood decided not to release the details of the condition of her body, stating that it would be released after the autopsy. It was almost immediately leaked, and word spread through the town, sparking what I would describe as a low-grade hysteria. We are trying to determine. We are trying to determine the identity, so we can notify the family. Two other teenagers who had been at the bonfire reported that Anthony had left shortly afterward, fueling speculation that he'd followed Violet home. This could never be proven. Another attendee at the bonfire was seen leaving shortly after Violet. He was said to have had a pretty obsessive crush on her. 
Police were never able to make a connection outside the two of them leaving the party at nearly the same time. And after that, the story just lingered. There were no new leads. A funeral was held for Lisa. Police occasionally brought in someone new for questioning, but it never seemed to lead anywhere. The story lingered in our collective imagination for days and weeks. And it's in that kind of absence of real information that speculation thrives and takes root. It's exactly how a ghost story is born. So why am I doing this now? I left Kentucky in my early 20s, and I build a career and a life for myself. It's not as though I need to go out freelancing. I'm not struggling, and I'm not trying to reinvent myself. I'm doing this because my mother died. It happened months ago from the time you're listening to this, but when I started this project, it had only been 10 days. She and I hadn't spoken for quite some time, for reasons that simultaneously feel trivial and not trivial at all. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. I'm coming home to bury her and to settle up her estate. I sold my editors on taking some leave so that I could work on this project. It began because I don't do well when I'm not busy, but it very quickly became something else. What I thought was a ghost story jumped out of the past and into the present. Some of the people you're about to meet turn out to be exactly who you think they are. Some of them don't. And that urban legend that you heard isn't over. Thank you for coming with me on this trip back home and back in time. Knowing what I know now, at the end of this project and preparing it for publication, I know you won't be disappointed. This is Olive Hill. Olive Hill is created by Ian Epperson, Brooke Jeanette, Bridget Howard, and Grant Schumer. If you like what you hear and you want to help us get the word out, then stop what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review us on iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. It helps others find the show, and you can message us and let us know you did, and we'll shower you in praise and gratitude. No joke, we really will. Olive Hill is written and directed by Ian Epperson. The voice of Esther Snow is Brooke Jeanette. The voice of Robert Isaac Wood is Mark Dryden. Additional credits and links are in the show notes. Sound production by Liz Walker. Music by Drew Raleigh. Olive Hill is a fictional story, but it's a real place. If you drop by Carter Cave State Park, you won't bump into Sheriff Robert Isaac Wood, but you might meet Tom T. Hall. And while you may not know his name, you've definitely heard his music. He wrote a little song called Harper Valley PTA about a woman who told a bunch of bossy men to mind their own business. And he wrote about a real woman he knew growing up in Olive Hill. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.